Hello and welcome back to TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for being with us. We've got a great show for you today as we're replaying our Bank of Texas Speaker Series event from earlier this month that covered a very important topic for our city going forward, public safety. As many of you know, Dallas has a new police chief in Eddie Garcia, who comes over to us after 29 years with the San Jose Police Department. He's the 30th chief in DPD history and the first Latino to hold the position, and we had a great time getting to know him and understanding his outlook for the department. He joined Ryan Sanders of the Dallas Morning News and Dallas City Councilwoman Jennifer Staubach-Gates for our Speaker Series conversation a few days after announcing that a veteran DPD officer had been arrested on capital murder charges nearly a year and a half after a man told investigators that he kidnapped and killed two people at the officer's instruction. The group touches on that and gets into much more about how Garcia is approaching his post as DPD chief following the tumultuous tenure of former chief Urena Hall. Before we begin, I'd like to recognize and thank our speaker series sponsors, without whom this event series would not be possible. Bank of Texas, Stuart Title, and the Dallas Morning News, thank you, thank you, thank you for your ongoing support of speaker series. If you want more event replays like today's speaker series, I'd urge you to subscribe to TrackCast on your favorite podcast app. You'll also get access to our ongoing CRE Executive Roundtable series, which is our monthly economic forecast from some of the top commercial real estate minds in DFW and beyond, as well as exclusive interviews like our Legends of Commercial Real Estate series. TrackCast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Now, here's Dallas Police Chief Eddie Garcia in conversation right here on TrackCast. Welcome, Chief. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How is everybody? Good. Uh, before I start, just thank you again for taking the time. And if everybody would like to click their cameras on, we'd love to see everybody's faces. I think um, the one part about COVID that's better than a conference call is you do get to see each other's faces. And I think it's important that we see each other, that we feel each other, that community is important. It's important to all of us um, to work on. So um, good afternoon, welcome. I'm Mike Avalon, founding partner and principal of Pegasus Avalon and chairman of the Real Estate Council this year. Um, I'd like to welcome you all to today's Bank of Texas series. Um, thank you to Bank of Texas again and the other sponsors. Um, and it is great to see everyone. We really, really look forward to, in the not too distant future, when it's safe and smart to do this together. That's uh, very important. Uh, I probably sound a bit repetitive, but it's always good to talk about your mission. What's Trek's mission, the Real Estate Council's mission? To cultivate relationships in our commercial real estate industry, to catalyze community investment, to influence policy, to propel careers and develop the leaders for tomorrow for our industry, for our community, and for our city. Uh, we do believe relationships are the lifeblood of, of career success and of community investment and of civic responsibility. It is said that deals travel at the speed of relationships, and I think you can say that also. Community healing travels at the speed of relationships. So building those relationships is quite essential. In 2021, Trek continued um, its impactful work uh, in our most underserved communities through the Dallas Catalyst Project, which we're very excited about, 
the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable Development. Um, in those, we try to revitalize communities, invest in people, and invest in the people specifically even who live there. Um, notwithstanding the environment of the past year, we've, um, we've not slowed down. We haven't slowed down in our commitment to the community. It's our belief um, that we are one community and it is that work in that whole community that betters us. Again, notwithstanding the stresses of COVID, um, as a nonprofit, we have honored and will continue to honor all of our commitments that we have made before the pandemic. So to the members who have helped uh, make that possible, thank you. Today, um, we are announcing today the Trek Community Investors. It's the next generation of our community support that combines um, financial capital, human capital to create equitable development throughout Dallas through the revitalizations of our most underserved neighborhoods. And for those of you less familiar, this is really a roll up of, of two of our previous enterprises, the Trek Foundation and the Trek Community Fund, trying to put those together. Um, Trek Community Investors will allow us to continue to provide capital that builds our community. All Trek members are community investors, and we want to formalize this work and the part that each of you plays in that work. So stay tuned. We have a new website that we're launching next month where you can get more direct information on how you can impactfully join in with the mission of the work. Uh, through that work, we do work closely with the city of Dallas, uh, city council, the police department. So therefore, we are particularly excited about having our new police chief, Chief Eddie Garcia, who hasn't had a minute off since he joined. And we appreciate Dallas Councilwoman Jennifer Gates. She is chair of the council's public safety committee. She is joining us here today to share her vision for a safer Dallas. I'm personally eager to hear both of their thoughts on how explosive growth of our city and our region parallel and fuel public safety issues. As an aside, I have to say it, Mrs. Gates will complete her fourth term and her full tenure of eight years on the city council coming up here. Um, so today, at the end of today's discussion, please join me in expressing our sincerest gratitude for her incredible work, her sacrifice to the city. And if you have followed along, we talk about servant leadership. That's what you've seen. So uh, um, Councilwoman Gates, um, a deep, deep sense of gratitude for your work over, over the very long years. And some of them have been very long years, I know. Um, Thank you. Now, based on the soon to be released census that's gonna come out, the figures, and I know I, I'm a numbers guy, so forgive me for this, but we do expect to see about 4.2 million people joining the population of our state coming up. And that'll take us to just under 30 million people. Growth is good, especially for our industry. If the population numbers hold, we can expect to add three new congressional districts uh, in, in our state going from 36 to 39. It's good for Texas, it's good for North Texas. Um, not only will the state have more congressional members, but that also has a direct corollary to tax funding. Um, in our direct region, we expect to go from about 8 million to about 10.2 million, is slightly over the next two decades. To put that in perspective, 
I know that Councilwoman uh, Gates and I grew up around the same time and around the same neighborhood. When we left for college, that growth that we're talking about equaled the entire population of North Texas. This is explosive growth. Yeah, with all the good expansion news, there are concerns. Um, given this ex exponential growth, public safety will be an issue. It's a concern that's relevant to me. It's relevant to all of us, um, both from a personal and per a per business perspective. Um, and you can't not have it in the context of our whole community. Our collective success will largely be guided to our attention to Maslow's hierarchy. Food security, housing security, education and opportunity. And again, public safety is at the top of the list. So with that said, um, we also look forward to hearing about Chief Garcia's um, new policy changes that he's looking at, thinking through um, how they will affect uh, DPD's budget and how that change will benefit the greater community. We're pleased to have as our moderator today, uh, Ryan Sanders. He's an editorial writer with the Dallas Morning News. I'm sure not everybody looks at who's writing things, but if you do look, you'll see um, who the author is. And, and we're very appreciative for him to be here today. He writes about crime and the criminal justice system. system. Personally, I wish he had less to write about. Um, Ryan is not only a journalist and an author, he's also a pastor too. So um, we appreciate Dallas Morning News joining, sponsoring today. And Ryan's work has been featured also the Star-Telegram, the Daily Wire, and the Deacon Magazine. So welcome, welcome to each of you. Welcome, uh, Mr. Sanders is our moderator, our guests, Honorable Councilwoman Gates, Chief Garcia, and we look forward to the discussion today. And Mr. Sanders, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to just ask some questions today about this issue that, as you said, is important, I think, to all of us who live here and work here and raise families here, not just to readers of the Dallas Morning News, but to everyone uh, on this call. We can't um, have a flourishing city unless we have a safe city. So this is an important topic. So thanks to Trek for hosting this and to the sponsors, and I look forward to a great conversation. Great. So um, just a, cute, a couple quick parliamentary notes, and then we're going to get on with the show here. Um, we're gonna kind of try to keep everybody muted so we don't have background noise. Um, we would love to hear your questions, Q&A towards the end. So along the way, I hope you have questions. Please ask them, please submit them through the uh, chat function. And um, Lori Kennedy will help um, put those together and um, format those while we're going. So with that, uh, Mr. Sanders, the microphone's yours. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, let me just take a minute to introduce each of our panelists, even though we've kind of met them already. These are gonna be names that are familiar to everyone if you are uh, faithful readers of the Dallas Morning News, which I'm sure all of you are. Uh, Jennifer Staubach-Gates is uh, in her fourth term as a, um, a city council member. She also she chairs the Public Safety Committee. She also chairs the city's Domestic Violence Task Force, which coordinates efforts among DPD, uh, the district attorney, judges, and community members. She also has received a, a ton of awards. I'll tell you a few of those. The Virginia Chandler Dykes Leadership Award in 2020, the Aspen Rodell Fellowship for Public Leadership in 2019, the Marley uh, Wildenthal Literacy Legacy Award in 2018, and the University of Carnot Word Alumni of Distinction for Service and Mission Award in 2015. Basically, she wins an award every year. Ms. Um, Dabba Gaines is a lifelong Dallasite, graduate of Ursuline Academy. Uh, she's also a registered nurse. So if this was, if we were together in person, this is where I would ask everyone to give a well uh, round of applause for 
Miss Gates, but um, just Jennifer, imagine that they're applauding for you silently. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. For Thanks for being here. And then Chief Garcia, uh, Eddie Garcia is the 30th police chief in Dallas PD. He is the first Latino in history to serve in that position, which I think in itself is um, remarkable and worth celebrating. Originally from Puerto Rico, Chief Garcia started in Dallas at the beginning of this year after spending 29 years with the San Jose Police Department, where he worked in patrol, narcotics, and special operations. He's been a patrol sergeant, a detective, a homicide investigator. He was promoted to lead that department in San Jose in 2016. Um, Chief Garcia earned a Bachelor of Science in Criminal Justice Management from Union Institute and University. He also attended the De Anza College in Cupertino, where he studied administration of justice. During Chief Garcia's tenure in San Jose, the department improved its minority recruiting, transparency, and community engagement. So, Chief, again, thanks for making time in your busy schedule for this. Now, uh, before we get to the, the hardball questions, there's one more point of connection that I want to make with, uh, with, between our panelists here. Chief Garcia, one of the first things that the people of Dallas learned about you before you even, when you were a candidate for this job, is that you're a lifelong, uh, diehard Dallas Cowboys fan. Uh, there were pictures of you and your family decked out in Cowboys jerseys all, all over the internet. And uh, San Jose Mayor, the mayor of San Jose, even told Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson that North Texas had landed, and this is a direct quote, an obnoxiously devoted Cowboys fan. So, Chief, as I'm sure you know, Mrs. Staubach Gates is the daughter of legendary Dallas Cowboys quarterback Roger Staubach. And so the first question today, y'all, is uh, Jennifer, <laughs> has he started pestering you for autographs yet? <laughs> No, he has not pestered me for autographs. So, but I feel like I may have to bring some out there as, as challenging as we made his job be the last few weeks. So, Yeah, you, you certainly jumped in with both feet, Chief. Well, Chief I will uh, say my dad was very pleased when he read, his, uh, read that he was a Cowboy fan and read everything about him. He's like, I think you, I think you guys picked a good Chief. So we'll see if he lives up to that. But. We're, we're all certainly glad that you managed to escape the corrupting influences of 49ers fans. So Chief, let me start with you and just ask about sort of an update on uh, trends in, in uh, law enforcement in Dallas. I think everyone on, on this call and probably everyone that you talk to is interested in an update from you just about how safe Dallas is. And so can you uh, tell us um, sort of a summary of the latest crime stats and what trends your department's tracking? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the question. I mean, I think it's a, a very fair question and it gives me an opportunity to kind of uh, talk about this issue holistically. Uh, I understand that we have a uh, one of my priorities to reduce violent crime here. Uh, one of the things we have to wrap our arms around is the murder rate in the city. Uh, we also need to understand that although we need police presence, we need to disrupt criminal enterprises, that there is a larger role that other departments and other entities need to play. Uh, We're not going to arrest our way out of the larger uh, violent problems that has plagued some of our uh, neighborhoods. Uh, it's going to be a collective uh, uh, teamwork effort uh, with us as law enforcement being a cog in the wheel. Uh, but I will say, you know, in the time that I've been here, I've seen the officers working extremely hard. I'm a data-driven individual. Uh, you know, I tell my commanders, we got to win the day. Uh, we got to win the day in order to uh, ensure uh, that our residents feel safe. One thing I'll say is when you look at the numbers, and a lot is made about, you know, the, the murder rate. And unfortunately, uh, the murders that occur in the city uh, happen to be also in our most vulnerable neighborhoods uh, that are impacted by high crime. Uh, and there's a lot of issues, uh, socioeconomic and others, uh, that have neighborhoods that, that suffer from, from these issues. 
uh, and that we, this is that's part of the teamwork effort that we need to work on uh, from giving a community hope, uh, from bringing, uh, from leveraging the resources we have, from combating blight uh, and those things to uh, education, jobs, uh, myriad of issues that really not having a lot to do with police work that have a direct impact on the safety of neighborhoods. My motto uh, is that we're gonna conduct weed and seed. That's what the Dallas Police Department's gonna do. We're gonna weed our neighborhoods of the criminal element, but then we're gonna come back and piggyback that with seeding positivity uh, into those same neighborhoods and ensure that our community knows and that they just don't see us as we're uh, ridding them of the criminal element. And so uh, when we do that, um, I think it's gonna change some things uh, as we go collectively. You know, what I will say uh, is although we, we do have to wrap our arms around the murder uh, rate in our cities, that I will tell you that as you look at our statistics, uh, so far last year was, 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 a, was a tough year, uh, but so far this year we're a little over 11% uh, down on violent crime in our city. Uh, we're about 14% uh, down on nonviolent crime for a total of down about 14% uh, total. Uh, what you'll hear from me, I'm not a big percentage guy. Uh, our goal is to have less victims, is what our goal is, is to have less victims. And when that, when that, when you, when you bring back victims, uh, you know, year to date, we're 254 less victims of violent crime in our city. Uh, we're almost, almost 1,300 less victims of nonviolent crime in our city. Uh, we're for a total of, we have 1,551 less victims of crime total in the city at this point than we had last year. Uh, that's definitely a trend in the right direction. Uh, when you look at last month, uh, we ended February uh, with 242 less victims than we had in January uh, for 24% uh, decrease in, in violent crime than January for the month of February. Uh, we had a decrease of, of uh, 1,200 less victims in the month of February than we did in January for a decrease of about 25% from January. And already this month, we're already beating that. Uh, this month, we have 50 less victims of violent crime the month of February than we had at this point the month of January. So we're definitely on a positive trend, not doing a uh, touchdown dance as we're staying on the football theme, on the theme here. Uh, but the men and women are working extremely hard. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so you know, we need to make sure that, uh, that our community knows that. Those, those uh, numbers are definitely trending in the right direction. That's, that's good news. I wanted to ask you follow up specifically about um, violent crime. You mentioned violent crime and even the, the homicide rates. The thing that we kept hearing from DPD before the pandemic was that violent crime uh, tends to break out most often, most often at the nexus of uh, gangs, drugs, and guns. That was the, the thing we kept hearing. But then since the pandemic started, we've started to hear about rises in crime in, in other settings, networks of family and friends, uh, people that are sort of stuck living together, that kind of thing. So can you speak to those trends is the drug, is the gang problem abating? Is the domestic violence increasing? Or what, what trends are you tracking there? Uh, well, we're tracking all trends as far as the murder rate goes. Uh, because again, our trends and everything else are moving in the right direction. When you see these charts, uh, the more red you see, uh, the better direction we're going. Um, and so definitely the murder rate is something that when we talk about with the violence is concerned, uh, you know, it's early in the year. It's too early in the year to really be able to drill that down. From a statistics perspective, we need some more data uh, to truly do that. I would tell you from what I have seen that guns, uh, uh, guns, drugs, and gangs are still a major vital part. Uh, I'm not quite certain you'll ever hear me say that one is less than the other. We have to deal with both um, to say that they're driving our numbers. Uh, we have seen an increase 
at times with family violence type issues uh, that have occurred. Uh, but again, uh, you know, a, a, a anecdotally from what I'm seeing, we, we still have to grapple with guns, drugs, and gangs. Yeah, let me ask you quickly, just to speak, if you, if you have any information about property crimes specifically, this is the, the Real Estate Council, where are property crimes happening? Can you identify hotspots, not just to the city, but are, do those happen most often in office buildings, warehouses, construction sites? Um, what can you tell us about that? Well, well, I can tell you right now, particularly now we're getting out of, uh, you know, some of the tougher stringent shelter in place models that we've had. I mean, our, our, not, our property crime uh, is, is, is down. Our property crime is, again, as I mentioned before, our property crime uh, is down nearly 14% total. Um, uh, burglaries, are, burglaries are down uh, substantially. Uh, but, uh, you know, right now when people are uh, closed businesses, uh, are definitely businesses that are that that can be targeted, uh, regardless what part of the city that you're in. Uh, particularly now, uh, when some businesses are closed because of the pandemic, uh, those are avenues that uh, that individuals will try to take advantage of. Uh, and so we try to use from a crime prevention technique uh, to do the best to see to, to do the best to be checking on businesses. Obviously, cameras are important uh, to be able to, to if they look open, uh, it definitely draws attention away from them during the daytime. So I would say definitely commercial type businesses that uh, are closed right now for the pandemic are generally vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, Councilmember Gates, let me loop you in uh, to this because um, I wanted to ask you about this, especially in the context of your work with domestic violence. Uh, Jan Langbean at the Genesis Women's Shelter told me recently that she expects the end of the pandemic to be the beginning of a wave of, of calls from do domestic violence victims and survivors who maybe right now are stuck at home with their abuser and can't reach out for help. Is that something that you're uh, aware of, that your work has seen? And I guess maybe more broadly, what is Dallas doing to become safer for women? Well, thank you. And yes, we do anticipate um, potentially more family violence um, as the pandemic um, as we get back out, because one of, one of the facts is women are most dangerous when they leave the perpetrator. And they haven't had the opportunity. A lot of them have been held sheltering in place. Um, we also know that unemployment contributes. Um, so there, there's a lot of factors that, could, that are in place currently, economic, socioeconomic um, conditions that could lead to more family violence. And we might see more people leaving a relationship at this point, which triggers um, often violent, they're more likely to be murdered. Um, when they've left. Um, so we are, we have a task force in place. Um, since Chief Garcia has gotten uh, on, in, arrived in Dallas, we had two murders that were um, uh, domestic violence victims. And in one of them, the two of our police officers were injured as well in shooting. It's one of the most dangerous calls. Chief Garcia knows that. Um, any officer will tell you that when there's escalation or violence within a home, when they make that call. So we are working. He immediately called me after that, those last two murders and said, and got, let's get the advocates together. I want to hear from them. I want to understand what trends are, are what they're seeing. Um, and, you know, we haven't we haven't seen, people have not been able to escape. So I, we're gonna all have to be on guard. Um, we keep asking the public, if you see something, say something, because some people don't have an opportunity to get things reported. They might not be able to report from themselves. Um, and then, you know, we need the public to 
um, you never know when that intervention is going to happen with somebody and it's, and you don't tell somebody, why do you stay? Just like, I, I, I hear, I feel your pain. I see you might be under some struggles. There is help if you're willing. Um, you have to be very, very careful about how you approach that and not make a, a victim feel like it's their fault for staying, but that you're aware, that you're aware, you're concerned, and there's, there's help out there. So there's, you know, the, we, we rely on the um, advocacy and the different um, nonprofits that step up and really provide for these victims and the counseling and the sheltering that's necessary and, and they're gearing up and they're ready. And um, so, you know, the police will be responsive and um, we're, we're, we're trying to prepare ourselves. Yeah, those are good tips. I want to add one other thing that related to women that I wanted to ask you about that our paper has done some reporting on is the backlog of rape kits at DPD. Uh, as of last fall, DPD had more untested rape kits on hand than any law enforcement agency in the state, according to an audit by DPS. So what's being done to get those kits tested? Some of it was dur during COVID, there was a, uh, a issue related to the actual processing of the kits. Uh, DPD has never destroyed any kits, even when they could have in the past. So we kind of started with a larger backlog than a lot of places. Um, but we briefed it. Um, I think, Chief, was it your first briefing, maybe in November, uh, that we briefed um, the plan? And we moving forward, um, I think we're going to be able to to clear the backlog and 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 take care of it. Chief, do you have an update on that? No, it's the same as we said before, Councilmember. Uh, we we shouldn't be in this issue again. I mean, again, to the point we're almost our own worst enemy with regards to the fact that we don't uh, we don't destroy uh, or don't or do that. So we send all of our kits to to uh, to testing, and so uh, we should be we'll be catching up, uh, and uh, we shouldn't be in that backlog again. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Chief, another issue that's gotten a lot of attention recently is uh, policy decisions around uh, marijuana. And by the way, I've, I've logged in and watched some of the Public Safety Committee meetings online, and I've got to commend you for your use of visual aids. Uh, you didn't bring a baggie of pot to the meeting today, did you? <laughs> no, no, I did not. For those of you who haven't seen those, the Chief does great visual aids on his uh, briefings. In any case, can you talk us through some of those policy changes and specifically, I want to ask you to lay out how those changes are going to make Dallas safer. Well, you know, some of the policy decisions that we made, particularly to marijuana, when it comes to that, is a couple things. Number one, uh, and it's based on two main points. One, uh, better, more, more efficient use of our time, uh, particularly with our officers. You know, our officers, uh, you know, it's, in my opinion, it's not a good efficient use of time for an officer to spend four to six hours uh, taking someone or booking someone into jail uh, for small uh, usable quantities of marijuana uh, when I need them concentrating on on violent crime, on individuals who are plaguing our community, our individuals that are selling drugs, our individuals that are in possession legally of weapons. Uh, that's what we need to be concentrating on. And so uh, by giving officers that, that uh, not, it's not even discretion even at this point, but to be able to give officers that tool to, to enable them to somehow adjudicate that case in a way other than them being caught up on something for a large amount of time will enable us to get them into the areas that they need to be into to be more vigilant. Uh, so I'm hopeful that that will show, that will show uh, uh, dividends. Uh, there's also, uh, also there's an equity issue. Uh, you know, um, when it's particularly as we do our violent crime program and plan that we will, unfortunately, our violent crime that exists, it's something that we need to combat, 
also happens to be in our communities of color uh, that are impacted by socioeconomic poverty and other uh, reasons. But we need to be vigilant in those areas. We need to have more presence in those areas. We need, we're going to be focused. Uh, we're going to be data-driven. Uh, we're going to be surgical in the manner in which we're present. Uh, so there's not a sense of over-policing. But having said that, nonetheless, there'll be more officers there. Uh, to the extent that there's going to be more officers, there's going to be more interactions with the public and more individuals that may be in small, uh, in possession of small amounts of marijuana. Uh, that, that is not why we're in those neighborhoods. We're in those neighborhoods to combat violent crime. Uh, and so uh, I feel that it'll make our city safer by giving officers more time uh, to, uh, to do that. Now, what it is and what it isn't, in no way, shape, or form uh, is this an, uh, a license to smoke marijuana in public. Uh, in no way, shape, or form is this a license to be selling marijuana. Even if I don't care if you have an ounce, if it's packaged for sale and we see it's for selling, that doesn't fall into this either. Uh, you know, and again, with that policy, one of the things that I'm thankful that council allowed us to do was for able for us to come up with policy because the cat and mouse game that occurs between drug dealers and officers and police officers has been going on for for a very long time. Uh, as they get smarter, we have to get smarter. Uh, and so, you know, one of the dynamics, we have over 6,800 calls for service a year about open air drug dealing. If those calls increase, then we may have to look at this policy again, uh, because certainly uh, the drug trade is driven by supply and demand. Uh, so we need to ensure that individuals don't think that, uh, that, that we're necessarily uh, decriminalizing the fact that they're still purchasing marijuana. Uh, but if we start seeing more calls for service in our impacted neighborhoods, then we may have to tweak that policy. Yeah, can you just speak to that? Because what do you say to the argument that um, because other crimes seem to surround uh, the trafficking of marijuana, that turning a blind eye to part of that is sort of inviting more activity there? Uh, well, you know, again, uh, we're open to trying things. Uh, you know, to, to reality, it might open the door for some areas, but having my officers available to deal with uh, Instead of the individual that may have, uh, you know, seven, uh, you know, six grams uh, of marijuana for personal use, instead of concentrating 46 hours on that individual, maybe they can concentrate on the individual who's actually selling drugs and in possession of illegal weapons. Uh, so it's a matter more of efficiency uh, than it is anything else. And by the way, just for clarity, you mentioned that a couple of times. It, it takes four to six hours for an officer to book someone in that's taking him off the streets for someone that he's arrested for. It, it, I've, yes, I've heard those stories that it, it depends. If someone doesn't have ID, as an example, uh, you can't cite them. So you uh, have to be forced to, you know, to, to take them into custody, which takes a lot of time. But in any event, even if it was a citation, the amount of work that goes into that process and booking in and things of that nature is time that we need our officers concentrating on other things. But again, having said the fact of it's a policy uh, decision here within the department, we're going to be able to look at that in six months and see if it's making an impact positively or negatively, and then move in that direction. Great. Uh, Councilmember Gates, uh, the big issue that we heard about a lot before the marijuana thing was the push last summer to re-examine police budgets. You know, the, the slogan that we kept hearing was defund right. the police. Uh, in the end, Dallas chose to take $7 million away from DBT's overtime budget. Um, so I know it's been a few months now, but I I'd like you to walk us through those conversations and why the council landed where it did. After the George Floyd protest and there was this outcry to defund the police and that we weren't going to work our way out of um, crime through policing and, you know, should we be spending our resources in other areas? Um, you know, I did, I, 
I believe, and this is not collectively as a council, but that some some areas that we do need to be um, looking at, you know, we've got to fix some of the socioeconomic conditions that lead to crime. And we were already putting in place the right response, um, having to deal with um, right care to help with mental illness. We were looking at um, doing a few other um, initiatives like the early warning system to help um, help police officers recognize or identify and intervene earlier um, that police that could uh, lead to, to try to decrease um, uh, negative interactions. And then we were looking at another program called ABLE. So we, in my, in my opinion, it was gonna take more money, not less money, because we're gonna be able to, at the same time, deploy these new initiatives um, as, in some of it, it might be in our parks and recreation centers as well. You know, more recreational, we're seeing an increase in juvenile crime. So more opportunities for juveniles to be engaged and healthy behaviors, either at the rec centers or the parks or through different, um, you know, programs with police. I, I didn't see it as a, you know, we're trying to build back the force. We've been doing that. You know, when I started eight years ago, we had 3,600 officers. We're down under 3,100 at this point. We, you know, had a correction to the pension system. We corrected the, the police pay scale so that we could help retain and recruit. We had made some really big initiatives that cost a lot of money that we were investing to be able to grow our department. And then this movement kind of stopped, you know, came and said, oh, is that the right approach? And, and I thought you, we had to um, take a breath and say, we can't stop the work we've been doing, but we're just gonna have to do more. So I was not supportive of reducing the DPD's budget, and in the end, we did not reduce the budget. But there was a movement to uh, try to speak to, um, really, it was the activists uh, that, were, that were coming in droves to our council. And they opted, a group of the council members opted, and, and more than eight, so it passed, to reduce overtime pay. And over time, we are trying to, one of the things we put in the budget was more civilians so that we could reduce um, overtime. Uh, we had a KPMG study that looked at efficiencies within the department, and one of it was to civilianize more positions because we weren't going to be able to replace them with sworn officers. And so in the end, there was a um, movement to reduce um, the overtime budget, which is really kind of flexible because it's, it's not a permanent it, and it can be amended pretty easily. We just add more overtime and ironically, um, the projection that we have right now from our, the government performance and our, um, we do these budget um, initiatives and track where we are budgeting is we're gonna, we're gonna be $8.1 million over in overtime. So in the end, the cuts that, we, that were adopted in the budget um, we'll probably, well, we're spending, no, no, nobody has said don't spend it in overtime because DPD has needed it. We've needed it during COVID. We've needed it um, in the transition um, between shifts. Uh, we needed it during the protest. Um, we, we've just needed the overtime. So in the end, we increase the budget. And um, I think we, we do these mid-year appropriations. I'll be gone, but it'll happen in June and the money will have been spent in overtime. And then they'll argue about should they appropriate it or not. But the reality is we've spent it. So uh, that's, uh, you know, 
and I don't see, we didn't, uh, our, our academy classes got smaller because of COVID, but there wasn't any, um, there was not consensus to reduce recruitment of police officers. You know, they'll go through this whole exercise again in the budget time frame, which is July, August, we adopt in September. So I'm sure these, these um, conversations will come back again. But I think what's important is the council has realized that we do have to invest and do things differently. And we invest like in right care, we're investing in more lighting. We're investing in violence interrupters, which is, you know, we established a whole new department that is um, governed by uh, Chief, uh, former Chief Pews. I mean, what's the chief? Always a chief, but Chief Pews is, um, has an Office of Integrated Public Safety Solutions. And under, in that office, um, you know, we are, we're doing things, it's, it, we're changing, it's called real change. And we are looking at blight, we are looking at code, we're looking at increasing lighting, um, and, and, and really how to change uh, environmental design to decrease criminal activity. So the reality is it's costing us more money. Um, and we are monitoring the effectiveness of that just like we do with our crime stats and our, day, and our monthly dashboards, um, all the different areas that we're trying to impact. So it's a holistic approach. And I think, um, you know, we're in agreement as a council that that's the movement that we need to be in. Let me ask you maybe an impossible question. And then Chief, I saw that you were trying to jump in for a minute. I wanna make sure you get a chance to speak to this. But have you ever seen any kind of estimate of how, it seems to me that we're talking about investing in um, preventative measures or measures to divert um, rather than, like you said, arresting our way out of crime. Have you ever seen an analysis of what, how many dollars in this bucket equals how many dollars in this bucket? In other words, how many lights do you have to install? How many right care calls do we, do we need to go on uh, that you know, pays for this many more officers making arrests? Does that make sense? I've never seen an analysis that can, can match up those dollars direct to direct, but I think it's over time, we're working on dashboards and metrics that we can try to um, uh, identify if they're, it's making a difference. Um, so we're, we're, we're monitoring the metrics, but I've, I've never seen it. Um, I mean, I think anecdotally, we all believe it and we, we can see it in communities um, and, but I haven't, I haven't seen it where you I'm can sure actually- I'm sure that would be an impossible hard algorithm to, to yeah. come up Chief with. Garcia, have you? Are you gonna say something about funding? No, I certainly have not seen any studies to say, you know, that equates those dollars to dollars. Let me, let me shift to a question about leadership um, and maybe touch on one other news item that's been, that's been on the front pages lately. It, uh, both of you are in positions of leadership, obviously, and on the call, we have a lot of uh, business leaders who are making you know, tough leadership decisions every day. Chief, uh, you've had no shortage of leadership challenges since you started. And last week was a big one. You announced that the, um, uh, the department was, uh, that a, an officer had been arrested for capital, capital uh, murder and that uh, he was, the news this morning was that he's being fired. Um, my understanding is that you went public with that the day after you were briefed on that. And so I know you can't speak to details about that case with us, but I wonder if you might just walk us through sort of uh, that and offer any leadership lessons uh, that, that came to you from that experience. Uh, well, well, I'll say I'm not going to comment on the specific case. I'll just talk about leadership. Uh, you know, listen, there's not a police chief in the country uh, of a major city that does not realize, uh, you know, the issues that have befallen uh, this 
us in this police department, whether it's five officers shot, two luckily, uh, you know, were not life-threatening, uh, one officer killed in the line of duty, another officer died on his way into work, uh, the winter storm, uh, then this last incident, uh, you know, again, I'll say this, I mean, I, I had no, I came in eyes wide open. I've been a police chief uh, for five years before this and three years the executive assistant before, uh, before that. Um, and from a leadership perspective, you got to lead. And I know that sounds overly simplistic, but you got to get out in front of things uh, because not only does the community expect that, but your officers expect that as well. Uh, particularly in these type of case, you know, the men and women that serve honorably uh, don't want uh, individuals that tarnish their badge uh, to serve alongside of them. Uh, and you need to recognize that. Uh, and at the end of the day, it comes really simply. You got to look at yourself in the mirror uh, at the end of the day to make sure that you're doing the right thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, those, those those are the leadership qualities. And, and, and again, you know, uh, whether this instance, uh, and I told people, we'll get through this, uh, but let's make no mistake about it. I work in the area. I, I, I longed to taking a, a page out of Stephen Covey's book with regards to the emotional bank accounts. Uh, and that was, in a, that was a humongous withdrawal from our community emotional bank accounts. And so we got to work on proactive, innovative things to be able to deposit back into that emotional bank account. And we're going to do that. That's not the first time that's happened to a major police department. It will not be the last. Uh, the, to me, it's the way when we hire from the human race. So it's the manner in which we deal with that adversity that we should be judged on uh, because these things are going to happen. Uh, and, uh, and those are some of, the, some of the tools that I've used. I think that uh, awareness is is important, and uh, you know maybe sometimes some of the best leadership lessons are the simple ones. Uh, Mrs. Gates, let me ask you the same question. Maybe not in relation to that particular murder case, but uh, you've been in city uh, government for eight years now. What's some of the leadership lessons you would want to share? Well, um, thank you. You know, this these we've we've really been challenged over the last year, and and for me, um, I have to determine you know, what's gonna, my role going to be in whatever the crisis is. And I think, you know, I was kind of, I was challenged back in my first term with Ebola. And I was like, how does somebody deal with as a new council member, um, uh, this disease that's, you know, first time in the United States and, and you have to figure out your role and you have to stay within your role and um, figure out what, how you're needed best and how you're going to be able to serve best. And for then, for at that point, it was for advocating for the constituents that were being turned away from work and, and getting the communication out. Being an effective communicator is something I think that have served me well over the last eight years. We're not going to have all the answers. We're not going to be able to, you know, I'm not going to be able to fix all the problems, all the potholes, all the, um, all the issues that come my way. But if I could help um, connect people, if I can uh, um, communicate with them effectively of what their expectations should be, um, in this crisis, not unlike other crises, is people want answers fast and immediately. And you, you can't, um, that's not always possible. Um, and the mayor put a committee together to deal with um, investigative and ethics issues and wants us to take on this case. And you know we can't jeopardize justice. I mean, there's an active criminal case um, that's pending. Um, there's internal investigations. Um, we're gonna, you know, I think the public will it will all get sorted out at the end. But you have to have patience. And we live in a world that people expect something immediately, um, and that's not always possible. And if it's done, if it's not done correctly, then you could have you know really bad ramifications from that. 
uh, and not having a fair trial or whatever, or, or jeopardizing justice. So, um, you know, leadership is, you, you have to, um, you have to lead knowing that you're not going to make everybody, you're not, everybody's not going to be happy with that choice, and, but you can't be afraid of it. Um, and then, you know, sometimes it's like, I'm doing my best, um, I'm communicating what's going on, um, and, and admitting, you know, this is the, you know, what the, admitting if you're wrong, admitting if you're, um, if something's not going to be able to solve immediately, you know, don't give people false hope, people don't need false hope, and they don't need misinformation either. Um, so, you know, trying to make sure everything that you share is accurate and current and um, is, I think, is, is helpful. That's, yeah, that, that's good. We're, we're coming up, we're five minutes till the hour, and I know some people might be, uh, have other meetings to go to or be doing this on, our, on their lunch break. Mike, do we have a minute for, I have plenty more questions, but I want to ask about equitable development. Um, yeah, have at it. Yeah. So a theme that, uh, that I keep hearing that, um, that I've heard for many quarters is about the need for affordable housing in Dallas. We just, the paper just published a pretty deep dive examination of trends among homelessness um, and homeless advocates talked to us about the need for more affordable housing. But also last week, our editorial board sat down with uh, Rob Kaplan, the chairman of the Dallas Fed, and he talked about affordable housing. So we're, we're hearing this from all quarters. Um, Mrs. Gates, you've been involved with, I think, with the Dallas Collaborative for Equitable, Equitable Development. Can you give us an update on that program and um, this need that our city has? Well, you know, um, housing is all, all interconnected. And when we talk about homeless, um, people have outrage about homelessness, that you have to make sure that you have you know, shelter, and then you have transitional housing, and then you have permanent supportive housing, and then there's um, affordable housing. And there's a, there's a fear of affordable housing when people say that that term, and they have a misunderstanding often of what it means. And it's really what we're lacking in the city is workforce housing. Um, and we, this is one of my concerns, and I, you know, represent the Vickery Meadow neighborhood, which is it's about about 110 multifamily complexes, about 25,000 people there. And it's a lot of workforce housing. Unfortunately, a lot of it, and I learned this during the storm, is continues to be, um, we have non-responsive landowners and that are not taking care of their properties. Um, and, and it's, so it's, but it's naturally occurring workforce housing because it's old, old stock. And you can't just, take it that all down either at this point because then we're going to lose affordable units so I, i'm struggling with the fact that the city we don't have a, a firm enough approach of city planning on how many you know we keep talking about these twenty thousand units that we need but we're not really addressing the ones that we have and are they turning over or not um i'm we started looking at Vickery Meadow. Um, I'm going to term out before we get through a, the plan. We started working towards looking at some zoning changes and decided we needed to update a 2013 plan. So I, we have to be cognizant of that fact and we have to figure out uh, though how those we can make improvements, um, have good landlords that'll come in update, make the environment safe and clean and for families to thrive in. At the same time, then when we do have new mixed use um, product, how we can have a mixed income incorporated and not have concentrated, concentrated poverty in areas. So 
it's it's challenging we can't there's not like cities you can look to and say oh they've done it um really really well because essentially you know most of them will take some gap funding to do affordable you can't especially like i find in my high opportunity areas like preston center um you know i've we've had some residential growth um passed through zoning but i've said we have to have underground parking and we have to have great setbacks so we have walkability and when you start putting that kind of pressure on developers then they that you know there's only there's only so much money um you know in their in their uh, performa to work and if you're asking them to do this they might not be able to do affordable so that's an issue that we've struggled with the city is um you know what's the public benefit and what are we prioritizing and and sometimes it's a balance you're not going to give me affordable units if you are having to put underground parking um yeah. and there unfortunately and i think all these uh real estate that people would agree i don't think that we have enough certainty at the city and so it's a little and that's somewhat because of the districts being different and what council members require for their and and i would like to see some more uniformity and some certainty so that somebody when they have a project they kind of know what the expectation is uh but it's it, every part of Dallas is a little bit different right now. Yeah, those are good points, especially about the existing um, stock. Yeah, the existing stock is important, and I and you know I'm going to watch over Victory Meadow. Hopefully, my predecessor will take care of that neighborhood as well. I mean, we need it needs to be cleaned up, and we need to work on crime. But at the same time, there's a lot of good um, there's a lot of good uh, resources, social service networks, so this DISD. We we put a library, we put infrastructure in. Um, it it really doesn't. Um, you, it would be a shame to be just a better uptown. Well, it's really families that are close to work. You have low income um, and workers that are close to their jobs, that are close to resources. It's not a food desert, it's close to transportation. Yeah. And we need to have those kind of pockets of neighborhoods in our city. That's great. Um, we're, we're up against it. Chief, I wanna give you the last uh, question. Um, there was a, a line in your bio uh, and then even something you know that's been talked about even um, as you were candidating for this job about your um, efforts to uh, connect with minority communities. I'll tell you that one of the first editorials that I ever wrote for our opinion pages was about a group of neighbors in Southern Dallas who felt so neglected by DPD that they had initiated their own armed patrols of the neighborhood. So you're clearly stepping into a situation where there's work to do in terms of community outreach. What can you tell us about initiatives to reach out to communities that have not always felt protected. Uh, well, you know what, there's no silver bullet. I mean, we have to get out there uh, and physically do it. Uh, we have to get out there and meet with our communities. We have to be active and ensure that not only are we enforcing the law and keeping the criminal element off the streets, but like I mentioned earlier, we have to work just as hard in seeding uh, those particular areas. We need to join them in, quite frankly, in their cry for equity. We need to join them in their, in their, in their, uh, in their movement to uh, get streetlights fixed, to uh, end blight, to fill those potholes, to uh, you know, to hold landlords accountable. We have to join them in that so that we can understand that, so that they know that we understand that there is more than just handcuffs that's going to take us out of the violence that we're uh, that we're experiencing. And the more we do that, the more that we can be as a team. It's not an us versus them. Uh, we're in this together. And so there's no again. We just got to get out there and do the work. Uh, and so one of the, I just had, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of the reasons uh, I was blogging all the way late, I had a meeting with all my 
my neighborhood police officers, and I'm going to have a meeting with community uh, uh, affairs where we're going to be uh, very strategic in the way we're reaching out. Uh, that we need to ensure that this battle that we're going that we're going to have against violent crime that we're all doing this, whether it's the special operations, whether it's the patrol officer, it's our outreach team that also need to be just as active in those uh, in those focus areas as our enforcement teams are. And you know, the more we do that, uh, the more we're out there, the more they're seeing that we're helping. Uh, we were just we had our MPOs out at a food giveaway in South Oak Cliff over the weekend. Uh, the more we're doing those type of things, the more the message is going to get across that we're in this together. Uh, we're on the same thing. We want the, our communities just as safe as they do. That's good. I appreciate that. I, I think the plan was for a Q&A, but I know I've brought us over time a few minutes. Um, what's the, we need to cut this off? Or, or do we have I any gotta, questions? I got to run to another meeting. Thank you. Lori, do we have any questions? No, we don't, but everyone, um, is free to, to submit a question to the chat function. Chief, I think you just said you got to run to another meeting. Is that right? Yeah, I got another meeting I got to yeah. run to. Hey, okay. thank you for doing thank this. Thank you very much, Chief. Yes. Thank you. Go ahead. Thank you. We'll, we'll talk soon. I'm and Trek, thank you both for your accessibility today and your leadership for our city. Thank Appreciate you. It. Thank you for having us. Thank Appreciate you. It. Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure. Hopefully, we'll do it again. And hopefully, yes. we'll, have, we'll do some work with the editorial board soon. <laughs> do that. It's always okay. fun to sit with the editorial board. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. All right, thank you, bye. bye. So thanks everyone for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks Ryan for moderating our discussion. We really appreciate uh, the partnership with the Dallas Morning News. And uh, Councilwoman Gates, uh, as a representative who has represented some of the wealthiest neighbors in the city, as well as the, some, some of the most challenged families in the city, uh, you've served us well and we thank you for your leadership during your tenure. Thank you very much for that. Um, and thanks for joining us today uh, because the work you're doing, very, very important for us. Um, thanks to our sponsors, Bank of Texas, Stuart Title, Dallas Morning News. Uh, we're looking forward to our next speaker series program, which will be held virtually and in person at the Below Mansion on June 23rd for lunch. So we hope you can join us by then. Uh, the predictions of, that we will all be vaccinated, um, hopefully will be true and we can all get together because we're looking forward to that. We've also announced that Fight Night will return September 30th. Fight Night really raises all the money that we uh, are using for working in our communities and the work that we're doing around equity and housing and all those issues are super important to this organization. So we hope you'll support that. Our chairman, Rick Perdue, who's the CEO of Rosewood Corporation, is our chairman. And I'm sure that he would love to hear from you if you'd like to participate. I hope you enjoyed our program today. Thank you for joining us and uh, have a great rest of your day. We're done. Thank you. That concludes our Bank of Texas Speaker Series replay. I'd like to thank our guests, Dallas Police Chief Eddie Garcia, Dallas City Councilwoman Jennifer Staubach-Gates, and our moderator, Ryan Sanders of the Dallas Morning News, as well as our Speaker Series sponsors, Bank of Texas, Stuart Title, and the Dallas Morning News. Thank you all for your support. If you like what you heard on today's show and you want more event replays, more roundtable discussions, more exclusive interviews, go subscribe to TrackCast on your favorite podcast app and check us out on social media. We've put links to each of our handles in the show notes for this episode. And until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.